Okay, now, everyone, have you ever lost something precious? Have you ever lost something precious? I was speaking to a friend here at the church earlier this week. I said, how are you doing? How's your day? He looked a bit fed up, and he said, oh, I've lost, I've lost my car key. It's the only car key. Um, yeah, I couldn't, just couldn't find it. I said, oh, dear. Uh, and he said, then I did, I did find it. It was in my pocket of the trousers that were in the washing machine. So that wasn't so much a case of lost and found as lost and drowned. <laughs> and the key only costs 400 pounds to replace. We all lose things. People lose phones, umbrellas, wallets, handbags, pets. We lose our tortoise on a regular basis. What about a child? We're thinking about children today, aren't we? What about a child? My wife, Melissa, some years ago, we lived in, in the United States. She was in an enormous shopping mall with dozens of shops and a food court at one end. And at that point, we had four children aged seven and under. I know, we're crazy. And so she was there, and uh, the, the third one of those children was, is called James. And he was tottering around, a two-year-old, with a bright, orange jacket on and mum was momentarily distracted by another child who I won't name the girl who was trying to steal something in the shop again and looked around and James was nowhere to be seen he was he, he'd gone and so she originally initially was quite calm and sort of looking around and calling James James but imagine the emotions as this went on for a full 15 minutes telling herself not to panic, searching the shop high and low, nowhere to be found, then finally out in the hallway looking up and down and then screaming and bellowing at the top of her lungs for the lost child, biting nails, looking around, approaching hysteria. People are watching. Security guard ran up. Don't, we can shut the, down the whole mall for you. We'll do a lockdown. All of a sudden, at the far end of the hall, there was a little flash of that orange jacket still tottering down there. She ran, grabbed him, hugged him. James, where have you been? I was hungry. <laughs> Standing by McDonald's, as usual. And she wept with relief. Now, when you lose something precious, you leave no stone unturned until you find it, do you? And when you find it, you feel such joy, fueled by relief, and you want to celebrate. Now, in chapter 15 of Luke's Gospel, which Horace just read for us, Jesus tells three stories of lost and found, a sheep, a coin, and a son. But Jesus is not just telling stories here. He is teaching. And here's the lesson. There is something you could lose that matters more than anything else. There's something you could lose that matters more than anything else. Far, far more, even than a child. And that thing is yourself. You could be lost forever. An eternal soul lost. So let's listen to Jesus today, shall we? I've got three headings. The first one is sheep and coins. 
The second one is the younger brother. And the third one is the older brother. So fusion, we're on question two on your sheet. What was lost and found? You got it? Sheep, coin, and a brother. But we're going to find out which one. So firstly, the sheep and the coins. In the first story, a man owns 100 sheep. He loses one of them. What percentage loss is that? Guys, come on. I know you're feeling a bit sleepy. It's a 1% loss, all right? It's a 1% loss. But this man cannot rest until he's found that one sheep, even though he's got 99 more. He will not rest. And he searches high and low, and he goes after it, and he finds it, and he, lovely image, puts the sheep on his shoulders. I don't think I would ever put a sheep on my shoulders, to be honest. Could be full of ticks. But he loves it that much, and he comes home rejoicing, and he calls his friends and neighbors to join the party. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep. That was lost. In the second story, a woman has... 10 silver coins, and she loses one of them. What percentage loss is it now? Thank you, 10%. 10% loss. That feels a bit, bit more substantial, doesn't it? She can't rest until she's found that coin. You ever dropped a coin and it went down the gap or on the floorboards or something? She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She lifts up the carpet. She moves the sofa and the furniture she, until she finally finds the coin. And she rejoices, calls her friends and neighbors to join the party. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I'd lost. Now, Jesus Christ explains here that those stories are pictures of salvation, of how God rescues us. Look, quick fusion, if you're on your sheet, look at question three. What does God rejoice about in verses seven and ten? Here's what it says. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need to repent. Verse 10, in the same way, Jesus says, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. These are pictures of what happens when a person comes to God with arms outstretched and asks for forgiveness, and God welcomes them in and accepts them, and that person is saved or rescued. And Jesus says here that in heaven, just try and imagine this, in the presence of God himself, the holy God, there is ecstatic joy and celebration over one sinner who repents. Now what is a sinner and what is repenting? A sinner is somebody who has lived for themselves and not for God. And that means all of us. We are all on a level playing field We're all sinners. We've lived in God's world as if he didn't exist. We've trusted in power or money or our ability to control or our skills or our comforts. We've trusted in all sorts of things except the living God. We've broken God's moral standards again and again, sometimes in actions, sometimes in the way we speak, most of the time in our thoughts. We've sinned by things we did deliberately and things we failed to do but we should have done. Commission and omission. We're all on this playing field, friends. And some of us are very, very moral and good, but we're still sinners. And some of us are very immoral and have sinned greatly, and we're all on the same page. This is what this is teaching us. And so spiritually we are lost, and the Bible goes even further. It says spiritually we are dead. So that's a sinner. Now what about repent? 
Repent means a complete change of mind and a turning around. When someone repents, they're going one way and they change their mind, they're open-minded enough to turn around and go the other way, God's way. They turn their life around. Now, repentance is often accompanied by deep regret. I wish I hadn't lived like that for so long. The years were wasted. Full of regret and remorse, sorrow for how they've lived. They want to change. They want to start anew. They want to be transformed. They come to God and ask him for a new start. Please forgive me. They promise to live for him now, not for themselves, to depend on God, to love him. And Jesus is saying when that happens, that person is no longer lost, but found. No longer dead, but alive. And all their guilt and all their shame is taken away. The Bible says it's taken as far as the east is from the west and it's buried in the very heart of the sea. It's gone. Saved. Rescues. And Jesus adds, you know what? There's incredible joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. So now we uh, understand the first two stories. But Jesus, you know, often takes people by surprise. And when he tells a story, there's often a sting in the tail. He wants to surprise us and make us think. And that's what happens here. Because the third story doesn't go as we expected. You know, we had the 100 coins and the one was lost. And then we had the 10, sorry, 100 sheep. 100 sheep and one was lost. 10 coins and one was lost. Two sons. We expect one's going to be lost. Which one? That will be a 50% loss. The third story has a surprise ending. It disrupts the flow It was deeply challenging for the people who heard it, and it should be deeply challenging for us. Because once again, something is lost and found. And this time, it's a man who has two sons. So we expect that one of them will be lost and found. But the question is, which son is lost? Second point, the younger brother. The younger brother. Verse 12, if you'd like to look in your Bible. Uh, Sorry, verse 11 Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. So this, while the father is still alive, the younger son comes to him and says, I want my share of the estate. Do you know what that's basically saying? I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could have my share of your money because that's all I want is your money. I don't want you, Dad. It's not only deeply offensive, it's very hurtful. And the father agrees to it. And the younger brother can't wait to get away. Verse 13, it says that in, uh, not long after that, in a few days, he got as far away as he could and he squandered all of that money in a wild lifestyle, and he blew it all. And by verse 14, he's actually wasted everything. He is broke, and now there's a severe famine. His life is a wreck. He takes the only job he can find. It is a minimum wage, zero hours contract on a pig farm. How low can you go? Fusion. How low can you go? For a Jewish person, you can't get any lower than working on a pig farm. Because pigs are unclean, filthy beasts. This is a filthy job. The lowest of the low. How low can you go? Would you eat dog food 
In the 1980s, I was a shelf stacker at Budgeons. Anybody here remember Budgeons on Hook Road? I earned £1.40 an hour. Worked there on Saturday nights. One week, me and my friend Michael Radcliffe ate some dog food. <laughs> Wasn't that bad? Don't judge me, it was a very boring job. But I wouldn't eat pig food. Even I draw a line. How hungry would you have to be to look at a bunch of pigs, you know, rooting around in, in whatever they root around in, we're not going to say any, what, it, what it is, you know, doing their pig stuff, looking in there and thinking, oh, I'd love some of that. <laughs> Just, I, mean, I remember taking the kids to a pig farm once, and I had to ask them to look away. It was grotesque. You look it in and say, oh, give me some of that rotten apple. Oh, that carrot. He is as low as you can go. He's absolutely wretched. You can count his ribs. He's starving. He's humiliated. There's nothing left of him. And Jesus says in verse 17, he came to himself. He kind of came to his senses. He thinks, what, what am I doing here? I'm dying here, but even the workmen on my dad's farm get treated better than this. I'm going to go back. I'm just going to take a chance. I'll go and beg for mercy. I know dad doesn't owe me anything, but I'll throw myself on his kindness. He's a good guy. Maybe, just maybe, he'll give me a job. So he works out what he's going to say. He makes this little speech for the moment he looks in his father's eyes. You know when you, when you have to have an awkward conversation with someone? You think about it in advance. What am I going to say? You kind of go over it. Oh, no, that doesn't sound right. So he works out this speech. He's going to say, uh, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So heaven is against God, and you is, is this level. So he sinned uh, vertically and horizontally. He's going to admit it. He, said, he says, I'm, going to, I'm not worthy, to, no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay? Make me like one of your hired servants. So he's got his little speech ready. And he, do you think he means it? Given what he's realized about himself? He really does. And what Jesus is doing here is painting a picture for us. This is what a sinner repenting actually looks like. It's that they come to their senses and they look at themselves and think, I thought I, thought I was so great, but I'm really wretched. I thought I was so good, and yet God actually... God doesn't owe me anything. And come back to him and ask for his mercy. There's no hint of entitlement here or self-justifying. None of that. So off he goes, but something very unexpected happens on the road. While he is still a long way off, the father spots him because the father, dad, has been scanning the horizon for the lost son. He still loves him. He's longing to have him back. He's scanning the horizon looking for the rebel if he's ever going to return. And the father, it says here, is filled with compassion. That's in verse 20. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And this word in the original language is a word that means your guts. He's moved in his bowels. He's stirred inside. He sees him. Oh, he's coming back. My son. And this word compassion is the same word that, that was used of Jesus himself when he saw a widow whose only son had died. Jesus was filled with compassion. 
And it's the same word used of the Good Samaritan. We've all heard of that story. The Good Samaritan sees a man battered and bleeding and robbed in a ditch. And he's filled with compassion. And this father, it's the same word. He's filled with compassion. And effusion, if you're looking at question five, how does the father react before the boy can apologize? He runs to him. He forgets himself. He forgets his coat. He forgets his hat. He forgets his house keys. He runs down the road. And in that culture, uh, senior men never ran. We know in our culture, senior men don't run because they're too overweight. But in that culture, senior men never ran because it's beneath their dignity. You know, they walk, they're in charge. They walk slowly. Other people come to them. They don't run. This guy forgets himself. He's running. He's running to the sun. He runs down the road. He forgets his dignity. And he sees him and he throws his arms around this pig-smelling son. And he kisses him. And so the son starts his little speech. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But before he can even finish and ask for a job, the father interrupts and he calls out to his servants, quick, bring out a robe, the best one. Put a ring on his finger. Give him some shoes. Kill the best calf. We're going to have a party tonight. We're going to have steak. We have got to celebrate because this son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he's found. Now, I want to ask two questions at this point. I wonder what you think of the answer to these questions. Did the son get what he deserved? No. I think we, don't, we wouldn't think he got what he deserved. This is far more than he deserved. He deserved severe disapproval. Maybe some kind of punishment. That's what he deserved. He sought mercy. He was asking his father to have mercy on him, but he got more than mercy. He got grace, which is somebody else's riches kindly given to you at their expense. And that's what we're praying for Ezra and Noah and all the children here, that you will know that our God is a picture of, is a father of grace. Because the second question I have is, who is this father a picture of? Now, the original audience were Jewish people. They knew their Bibles well. And they knew that ultimately, the only one ultimately who can forgive sins is God himself. So the father in the story is doing what only God can do. And in this book of Luke, Jesus has called God Father numerous times. That's a special word that Jesus had for the special relationship he had with God. He calls him father more than anyone else. So the most natural conclusion is that this father is a picture of God. This is what God is like. You know, we all have a, some kind of mental image of God. Maybe it's even drawn from your own father. That might not be a great thing. I remember... A, a church member of my previous church who said to me, you know, I've realized that my picture of God is a small, angry Scotsman with ginger hair. <laughs> we have some kind of image of God, and our image of God is always distorted. Jesus is setting it right here. This is the Father who welcomes sinners who repent and embraces them and then celebrates. Jesus is telling us this is what God is like Fusion.
question six there. What does the parable tell us that God is like? God is like this father. Now, wouldn't it have been great if the story just ended there? Verse 24. You know, that's a wonderful end to the story. Uh, this younger son went off to a far country. He wasted his money. He's ruined. He's humbled. He comes back. The father brings him in. There's a great celebration. Lost and found. Done. Dusted. Sunday lunch. Not so quick. It would be a good moral tale, wouldn't it? Don't be like the younger son. He broke all the rules. He was selfish. Don't, didn't fulfill his obligations. Uh, because if you do that, it will lead to destruction and poverty. Let's pray. But, um, that would be neat, by the way. A lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. And it would have been very clear who the lost son was. And the moral would be, don't be like the younger son. Be like the older son. The good boy stayed at home. Obeyed. Lived morally. Follow the traditions. But Jesus doesn't end there. Jesus is going to turn this upside down. He wants to shock us. Because the way he tells it, the way he tells it, there's a sting in the tail. Because what happens? Third point, the older brother ruins the whole thing. The older brother. He is what we call a party pooper. Remember what happens when the lost sinners repent in verse 7 and 10? All heaven rejoices. A single human being repents. The angels high-fiving, doing whatever angels do, dancing, <laughs> doing whatever angels do to celebrate. Everyone's happy in heaven. These angels spend their time in the presence of the holy God, the source of all beauty and majesty and glory. Why should they care two hoots about a lost sinner? Because they are happy when God is happy. And God loves saving sinners and saving people is a top priority in heaven. And everyone on earth is celebrating too. They invite their friends and neighbors to the party. And in this whole symphony of joy, there is one bum note. There's one face that isn't smiling. It's the older brother. He's got a face like a nun in pain. He and only he is not celebrating. He's out in the field working. He hears the music, sound of some bad karaoke, sound of glasses clinking and people talk. You know, a lovely buzz of a party. He calls the servant. He says, what's going on in there? And then the servant tells him. And his reaction is absolutely fascinating. He is not pleased. He's not excited. He doesn't rush to hug the brother. Look at verse 28. He became angry and refused to go in. He sulks. He has his arms crossed. His back's turned. I'm not coming in. Don't try and get me to go in there. I'm not going. I don't want to be in that party. And don't bring any sausage rolls out to me either. I'm not hungry. And again, the father makes the first move. Second time, the father comes out. And he pleads with him. He pleads. He forgets his dignity again. He pleads with the sulking son. Come in. Please come in. We want you with us. You're part of the family. Please come in. But even though the father comes out and begs him to go in, we never read that he does. Now this surprise ending is a clue to the main point of the story. The older brother is lost. Jesus is telling these stories to some real-life older brothers, by the way. Look back at how this whole thing started in verse 1 and 2. The tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
Now, these Pharisees were influential people. They were a religious pressure group. Their concern was to purify the nation. They taught morality, high standards, back to basics. They were very religious. They kept God's law and the family traditions. And in many ways, they were heroic. But there's always a danger they could be just like the older brother. The other group of the scribes, they're the legal experts in a culture that, whose law was in the Bible. So they know their scriptures very well. They are authoritative teachers. They keep God's law and the family traditions. But there's always this danger. They could be just like the older brother. And these two groups throughout the book have been stalking Jesus like a wolf pack. At times they challenge him directly. Chapter 14, they ran out of ammunition because Jesus challenged them. And now they are out to get him. And they are grumbling and offended. Because what? Because Jesus is hanging out and eating with some people called tax collectors and sinners. These are people who are excluded from the religious community. If, we had a, if this was a, 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 a synagogue meeting place of that time, we would have actually had people on the front door, not welcoming everyone in, but making sure that tax collectors and sinners didn't come into this service. Seriously. Get out. You are not allowed in here. You are impure. impure. We're only having the holy people in here. And not only are these disreputable types coming near to listen to Jesus, he is welcoming them and he's actually eating with them, which is he's crossed the line there. Pharisees, legal teachers, did not consider it proper to eat with such people because if you have intimate table fellowship with someone, you indicate that you accept them. And they don't want to do that. So they're not happy. These people are not worthy. They shouldn't be with a teacher. So what kind of teacher is Jesus? Jesus is eating dinner with traitors, frauds, exploiters, con men, pimps, tax evaders, people with a past, pornographers, people with broken lives, people who the polite middle classes are ashamed to be around. These people are the ones who want to listen to Jesus. And Jesus welcomes them and eats with them. And Jesus can see the reaction of these deeply religious men, the pillars of the community. And that's why he told the stories of the sheep, the coin, the sons. Which of you would not leave the 99 sheep for one and that had wandered down over the A3? Oh yeah, we would go and save it, yeah. Which woman who had lost 10% of her life savings wouldn't turn the house upside down until she found it? Oh yeah, of course you would, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we all agree, Jesus. Search and rescue is vital. There would be great joy on recovery, lost and found. What about the younger brother? How would you feel about him? Jesus says to good moral people, you are just like the older brother. And remember the question we asked, which son is lost? The answer is the older one. He refused to go in. The younger brother is accepted back, the older brother is lost. So what kept him outside? The answer is his attitude towards his goodness. Verses 28 to 30, he reveals his heart, actually, his motives. He says, look, all these years I've been slaving for you, and, you never, and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat to celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice the distance there, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, 
you kill the fattened calf for him. His real problem is his heart. He feels entitled. He feels the father owes him. He feels he's earned it because he's worked so very, very hard. But he actually, just like the other one, is just, he's actually very similar in that he doesn't really love the father. He wants what he can get from him. He's been trained to get the father's property by being very, very good. And when he doesn't get what he thinks he deserves, he's filled with rage and bitterness. And his real heart is exposed because he looked like such a good son on the outside. But he was just like the younger brother. Both wanted what they can get from dad. Both, neither of them really loved dad. Both, one tries to get it by saying, stuff you, dad, and running as far as he can. The other one does it by staying home and being very, very obedient. So who's the lost son? Now let me ask as we close, where are you in this story, friends? Who do you identify with? The younger brother or the older brother? The twist in the tale is that only one of them repents. Heaven only celebrates the younger brother, the bad boy. Do you justify yourself by being very good? This is not actually about being religious. I've got friends who are atheists who are very good people. They work hard at their jobs. They pay taxes. They recycle. They eat five fruit and veg a day. They give to charity. Their house is tidy. They drive the speed limit. They avoid using offensive words. They're polite and nice. They probably floss. (laughs) Very good people. Care about the environment. Care about human rights and justice. Care about animal welfare. Very good people. But Jesus shows that very good people can be lost. It's not about religion. It's about the heart, about repentance. Both the brothers actually needed to repent, didn't they? Both needed to change their mind. Both needed to turn to the Father, humble themselves, and love him. But only one did. Where are you in the story? Churches are full of older brothers. Here's five tests. One, when life goes wrong, you get angry. You work so hard to be a good Christian that when things go wrong, you get angry about it. You've worked so hard trying to control God with your goodness. You get very angry, either at God or at yourself. You hate yourself. So angry. Why has it gone wrong? It must be my fault. You're forgetting Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life and whose life didn't go well. Secondly, you get really angry when other people fail. You're easily offended. You take offense at things. You have a tendency to rage at other people internally. You notice other Christians' failures and sins. You're very sensitive to that. You have a judgmental spirit. You think to yourself, they don't work as hard as me in the life of church. Thirdly, you obey God, but it is joyless. Now, there are times for everyone when obeying God is hard, but in this example, it's always a grind. The brother says... I've been slaving away. That's to do with his heart. Why would you feel you were slaving? Because he's using God to get something else. God isn't the end. God is the means to the end. 
And there's something else that is the joy of this person's heart. I'll obey God so that I'll get a good career. I'll obey God so that I'll get married. I'll obey God so that my life will go well. In other words, God is the means to an end, something else apart from God is the real joy. Fourthly, you hold grudges. Here's the father who's been really sinned against, really sinned against by this younger brother, and he forgives him. It's all gone. Forget. Not talking about it again. But the elder brother holds a grudge. He will not forgive. And listen, if you're holding a grudge, a long-term grudge against someone, it's because you think you would never do anything like that. And that's self-righteousness. You've got to be elder brotherish to a degree, or you wouldn't hang on to the grudge. And the root of all of this, by the way, is that you don't believe God really loves you. So there's a lack of intimacy with God. There's no confidence in his love. You'll work very, very hard because you think that's what will make God accept you. But you don't have a sense of the Father's free love. Maybe you're not very intimate in prayer. You do pray, but it's not very personal. Not much joy, not much adoration, not much deep gratitude. All the goodness is about trying to satisfy a demanding Father in heaven. Which brother are you like? Now, I think it's clear that both these sons were lost, but only one was found, and the shock is that it was the bad boy. The good son stayed lost. So if you're realizing, dear friends, if you're realizing right now, gosh, I am lost. I'm more like this elder brother than I realized. Or you realize I'm actually like the younger one. I'm, I'm waiting for the moment that I can say, stuff you to my parents and go to university and forget all about it. You can be found today. Remember the love of the Father. He initiates. He runs out. He's not unwilling. You don't have to twist his arm. He's waiting for you. He's full of compassion for you. He calls you. He seeks you. God is the true seeker. Remember his love. Remember the picture of repentance. The younger brother's posture and attitude. Not entitled, not full of himself, but poor. Wretched, aware of guilt. And Jesus is saying here that we all have to repent. The bad ones and the good ones. But what makes you a Christian is not just repenting. It's about a deeper repentance. Repenting even for the reason why we did good things in the first place. Finally, we look to the true older brother. In that culture, everything that was left was the older brother's inheritance. The younger brothers had his share, right? So the, fa- the, son sa- the father says, everything I have is yours. It's a true statement. The younger son has spent his inheritance. He has nothing left. That everything is the older brothers. So uh, now we see one re- another reason why we're so angry. Because the only way that the younger brother can be brought in is the expense of the older one. That calf, that gold ring, that beautiful robe, everything was actually his inheritance, and now it's being given to this wretch. And when you get to know Jesus, you find an older brother who shares all he has with you. An older brother who wants you to come in. An older brother who will put his robe on you. Who will give you his inheritance. Who will dress you and feed you. An older brother who's prepared to pay the costliest price. And the Bible reveals to us the full price that Jesus was willing to pay 
to welcome sinners into God's family, not just sharing his robe, his treasure, and his home, but sacrificing his very life. He paid the great and terrible price to welcome us in. Younger brothers, younger sisters, older brothers, older sisters, all alike. And he did so on the cross. And that's what we long for Ezra and Noah to know. That's the good news.